0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 18C, an interview on Grant, Lincoln, and Reconstruction with Ron White. I'm excited to welcome Ron White to the show today. Ron is a New York Times bestselling author of presidential biographies, including his recently published A. Lincoln, a biography, and American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant which is where we'll focus most of our time today. Ron, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Kenny, very good to be with you and your audience.
0: Thanks. Now, you've written a book about Grant and many books about Lincoln. Before I dive full bore into Grant, I'd love to spend some time talking about that partnership uh, when Lincoln was president and Grant was the leader of the Union armies. How does that relationship between Lincoln and Grant grow and evolve and what impact do they have on each other?
1: Well, I think, Kenny, it really becomes a mutual admiration society. Why? They were both Western men, West being Ohio, Illinois. They were both men who valued both ambition and humility. By that, I mean, Lincoln was getting so tired of all of his pretentious generals, especially someone like George McClellan, (laughs) the so-called Little Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And what he liked about Grant was he never asked for too much, he never complained, he never touted his own horn, and this really drew Lincoln to him. Now, Lincoln liked to interview all of his generals, but these were generals in the East, so he would travel to where they were or invite them to the White House. He never met Grant until Grant came East in the spring of 1864. They only met several times But uh, Grant, in his memoirs, in typically Grant fashion, said by far the greatest person of our age is Abraham Lincoln. He never compared himself to Lincoln. I think he only ran for the presidency because Andrew Johnson had been such a disaster, and he thought at least, the very least, he could try to carry on the legacy of Lincoln and the vision of Lincoln for Reconstruction.
0: So you mentioned that they, they meet each other kind of later in the war, because Grant's way out west, and they That's have this very respectful relationship. What impact do they have on each other? For example, Lincoln on Grant. You know, does Grant grow from his relationship with Lincoln? Well, oh, I think he
1: does. I think the peace that Grant offers Lee at Appomattox is very much the kind of peace that Lincoln would offer, that Grant saw in Lincoln a very magnanimous person, and he was magnanimous, too, but I think that in a certain sense, Lincoln was almost a mentor to Grant. Mm-hmm. He, 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 he was a model for him. Grant, like military figures, was not involved in politics at all,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, but he saw Lincoln as the figure that he wanted to emulate.
0: Was there an opposite uh, of that relationship? Was there an influence that Grant had on Lincoln?
1: I think so. One of the most remarkable letters often to me not fully appreciated is that after the victory at Gettysburg, Lincoln writes this amazing letter. He is so angry at George Meade for not following up Lee, is allowing Lee to kind of escape and ultimately to cross back over the Potomac River into Virginia. And so he writes this letter in which he says, do you not understand But then a remarkable, to me, quality of leadership, I've seen the letter and the envelope in the National Archives, or the Library of Congress, rather. And on the envelope, it says, never signed, never sent. Wow, wouldn't that be another wonderful quality for people today? Never (laughs) signed, never (laughs) sent. But at the same time, he writes a letter to Grant. And he says, when you decided to do this, I thought that was wrong. I disagreed with you there. This is about Vicksburg. I didn't agree with that. And at the end of his letter, he says, but I want to apologize. I was wrong and you were right. Wow. I think that says volumes first about Lincoln's character, but mm-hmm. also about, as you're suggesting in your question, his respect for Grant.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for that, for that perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the craziest what ifs of their friendship to me right. is the last night of Lincoln's life. When yes. Grant turned down an invitation to join Lincoln at Ford's theater, uh, the night he was assassinated, he was going to go and he changed his mind. In what ways does Grant carry that with him the rest of his life?
1: No, oh, I think he does carry it. And it's a, it's a real question as to why did he turn it down? Usually the onus is put on Julia, mm-hmm. Grant's wife. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, to her regard, she said, we haven't seen our children in a long time. They're living Fair in the point. Of Philadelphia. She also believed that somebody was following her or tracking her or shadowing her during the day, a strange man in a carriage or a man that was looking at her while she had lunch, which frightened her. So she persuaded her husband, who I think would have wanted to go to be with Lincoln, to do this. Mm. He arrives at the train station in Philadelphia and receives a telegram that Lincoln has been shot and will die. And for the rest of his life, he asks himself the question, "What if?" But I'm not sure what if would have happened. I'm not sure that Grant would have stopped this because the assassin just came in from the back and put a pistol to Lincoln's head, and Grant wouldn't have even known it was happening. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, when I chat with you know friends or listeners about that, their usual conclusion is, "Oh my God, Grant could have died too." <laughs> that's their first yeah, thought. There. That,
1: that's another point. He could have died
0: too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm good. I had never heard that about Julia thinking she was being followed that day. Is yeah. there any suggestion or evidence that that was another conspirator, that maybe somebody had been targeting her or Grant or something like that?
1: It's it's unknown who this person was, but she's very clear that someone was doing this and she was very frightened.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you look at this, the impact that this has on, on Grant uh, and especially you look at, say, Grant's presidency, Mm -hmm. Do you see someone who's trying to be Lincoln's second term, or do you see someone who's forging their own unique path?
1: I think he begins by trying to be Lincoln's second term. He even begins by saying almost, I'm not the leader of the Republican Party. I'm just the president of the United States. And he grows into the job and recognizes, I am the leader of the Republican Party because the Democratic Party is opposing us. So yeah. here's a person who grows into the job. He wasn't, I think, he as I suggested earlier, he had really li- no political experience. So this was all new to him. And this may be a later question or topic. People have often said, well, here's another failed general as president. I mm-hmm. don't see it quite that way. I think his presidency has really risen in the various presidential historians' polls of the 21st century.
0: And so, so when Grant becomes president, one of the big tasks he he does have to deal with, and there's a lot that happens in his eight years. Yes. One of the big ones is Reconstruction, for sure. Yes. And as he's entering office, I mean, it, it almost looks like there's a white on black race war in the South. You know, you have yes. the Klan on the rise, right? men are being massacred. But you know, the the past four years before he became president, Grant was in charge of the Union armies occupying the South, and I suppose, to a degree, responsible for Reconstruction there. So can you help clarify for me what were his responsibilities uh, in the Johnson administration uh, and especially relating to Reconstruction in those years?
1: Well, let's back up just for a moment. Sure. It's, it's fascinating. I, I'm all, always interested in the formation of leaders. Grant's father was very much anti-slavery, but there's no particular indication that he was anti-slavery growing up. Mm -hmm. But I think the further south that he traveled in the Civil War, the more he encountered African American slaves, and the more empathetic he became to their plight. Mm. So as he takes, as he becomes the general in chief after the Civil War, he watches the war going on between Congress, which is overwhelmingly Republican, and Andrew Johnson. And although initially he sort of as a military person, doesn't want to be involved in politics. He steps aside. He more and more becomes involved and takes the side of Congress. They ask him to testify. They ask him to give information, what's going on in the South, what's happening to the various freedmen bureaus, what's happening to the Union Army. And he really begins to learn what's going on to his disappointment, the South, the generals, the editors are trying to reinstate, if not slavery, what will become, we know, as segregation.
0: Jim Crow. So what's his responsibility during that time? You mentioned uh, there's kind of a a feud at the top, you know, between Congress and Johnson. So as Congress starts imposing congressional reconstruction and they start saying, Grant, you know, we're really going to give you powers to try to implement our vision. What what are his responsibilities exactly? You know, like where does the book stop? What like of the violence in the South is is he supposed to be stopped? You know, what's his his role in that?
1: Well, this is a dilemma for him because in one sense he serves even as a time as sort of Secretary of War in the Johnson administration, but he will often absent himself from the cabinet meetings the moment that he reports on what's going on in the military theater. He becomes increasingly Disconcerted about Johnson. Johnson realizes very quickly that his chief rival is Grant. even tries to appoint Grant as ambassador to Mexico to get him out of the United States to have him succeeded by Sherman. Sherman, who is Grant's best friend, says, I'm not going to play that game. You're not going to push Grant <laughs> aside and push me in. Yeah. So Grant is caught in a very difficult situation here, but all the time his stock is rising. And as one person says, He's becoming more and more radical as he understands what's at stake
0: here. So when, when he becomes president, he really, as you said, he understands what's at stake. He understands the situation. He's been observing it. He's been talking to Congress about it. What are his solutions when he's first entering the White House? Um, yeah, what's the solution to the problem in the South? Well, I think
1: one of the reasons that Grant's reputation fell was the whole lost South mantra that the idea that uh, we don't make heroes out of people who are going to lift up the rights of African Americans, as the as United States history was taught all the way up to the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And now we're rediscovering that Grant, even as his own Republican Party, after passing the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, begins to back away, oh, let the South settle this. Grant steps forward. He sees the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which we can only call a terrorist organization, a white supremacy terrorist organization. And he is very willing to, to step forward now and to challenge the Klan. Why? Because as the Klansmen are elected or prosecuted in state and local courts, they're never convicted. So he's now willing to use the federal government and the federal army to go after the Klan. So I think that one reason that Grant's status has risen is because we now recognize that he was willing to step forward to defend the rights of African-Americans.
0: So, so he's stepping forward, he's you know working like creating the DOJ and enforcing these policies. To what degree do they succeed or fail?
1: Let me also say that he is the first person to appoint what we now know as the Attorney General at first, that office was really a kind of a personal lawyer. Yeah, became <laughs> that in the last term, but he gives it uh, independence. He appoints a southerner. Then he appoints a solicitor general who's a southerner, but both are strongly uh, for African Americans. Wow. So ultimately, Grant isn't always successful in this. I mean, even as we see today, the southern courts, the southern governors are able to try to get around Grant, get around the federal government. And ultimately when Grant finishes his second term, why Rutherford behaves, his successor, will withdraw the Union Army from the South.
0: So let's let's talk a little bit about that, that Rutherford behaves, because it brings up something I want to talk about. And that's elections. You know, in yes. 1872, when Grant's running for re-election, you have this pretty free and open election in the South. And black Republicans really helped kind of lift Grant in a number of the states. Yes. In 1876, the election where Hayes is running, and and it's going to be a crazy election. I'll talk about that in future episodes. But in that election, white supremacists successfully suppressed the African-American vote in the South. And most of those states end up Democrat. So my question for you is what went wrong in those four years? Like when you see that happen, when you see that suppression of the black vote, Could could you look at that and conclude the white supremacists defeated Ulysses S. Grant?
1: In a certain sense, they did. I think that Grant and others were caught off guard. They didn't fully appreciate who they were dealing with and the means by which people would do this, go against the Republican government. He really believed that the Republican Party could be successful in the South, could win these elections. But often Democrats would strong arm that. They would come into an assembly and dismiss Republican legislators. He wasn't fully prepared for that reality.
0: And so a a big deal will be made. Actually, you just kind of mentioned a second ago. In 1877, when Hayes becomes president, he withdraws the remaining troops. But if I understand right, Grant had already removed federal troops from all but two or three states. Is, Is that correct?
1: He'd begun to remove troops, but but I don't think he would have he would have not have done what uh, Rutherford B. Hayes did. He, he wasn't giving up on trying to allow African-Americans to have a vote in the South. Yeah.
0: So why then do you think he was removing them from at least some states? If you don't think he was going to remove them from the last couple of states like Hayes did, why was he looking to some of these states and removing the troops? And what was the cost of that?
1: Well, sometimes the, the uh, the military rule, he even had, say, Hancock was ruling in New Orleans. Yeah. Some some of the military leaders were actually working in tandem with people who wanted to remove the African-American vote. So in a certain sense, he, he sent Sheridan down to New Orleans to try to reverse this proceeding. So he even had problems within his own military in terms of what to do. And the problem which we have to remember, this was new to me, is that People signed up for three-year terms of duty. Good point. Yeah. So the African-Americans signed up late. They didn't start signing up until late 1863, 1864. So at the beginning of Reconstruction, 36% of the Union Army in the South was Mm African-American. And the very idea of African-American Union soldiers patrolling streets in New Orleans, in Atlanta, Nashville, was just anathema to the people of the South. So again, there was a pushback even against the Union Army.
0: What do you think the final verdict is on Grant's reconstruction uh, efforts of reconstruction under Grant?
1: Well, I, I think first of all, the I would argue that he was the last president before we get really to uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson, mm-hmm. who, along obviously Martin Luther King, who stood up squarely for African Americans. And, and this was the, the Republican Party of that yeah. day.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and so he represented that. I think he also, and this is often, Lincoln often told this remarkable story where two men were wrestling. And the more they wrestled, they wrestled out of each other's clothes into the clothes yeah. of the others. And so when I speak to people, I'm going to be speaking to 11 Midwestern state legislators in a few weeks. I will make the point that in the 19th century, the Republican Party was the party of a strong central government, and the Democratic yeah, yeah. Party was states' rights. Yeah. And now we've completely flipped, and the Republican Party is the party of states' rights, and the Democratic Party is the party of strong central government. Well, Lincoln and Grant were strong central government. They knew they needed this to deal with the exigencies of the time.
0: Thank you for that, that context, that verdict, and, yeah. and all that insight on Reconstruction under Grant. I'd, I'd love to now turn to, I suppose you could almost look at it as another civil rights issue, and that was uh, Native American affairs. Yes. You know, and that's not something I had a chance to go deeper into my issue. So I love the chance to talk to you about it here. You, you write about how he reimagined the country's policy towards its indigenous population. Can you break down for me how his policy was different?
1: Okay, and I should say that when I turned in my manuscript, my editor said, what? This is 150 pages too long. You must cut 150 pages. And I cut some of those pages were the pages dealing with Native Americans.
0: Oh, bummer. As a former journalist, I know how editors are like that.
1: So, So Grant traveled West when he first campaigned in 1868. He did not campaign. Right. He traveled all the way to Denver. And he came back with this perception. The problem was not the Indians. The problem was the settlers. And now he's arrayed against his own generals, Sherman and Sheridan.
0: There's Mm -hmm. no such
1: thing as a good Indian. There's only a dead Indian.
0: That was their quote. Yeah.
1: He was very sympathetic to the plight of Native Americans and often missed in his inaugural address of March 1869. He includes early on a paragraph in which he says, we must reimagine our practice and policy with Indians. And what I want to do, he says, we have been dealing with incredible corruption. I want to ask the churches, both Protestant and Catholic, to have a meeting with me in the White House. And I want to ask them to send their sort of mission agents as to be the new kind of Indian agents because I think they will be much more sympathetic to the plight and the problems of the Indians. So Grant began with great uh, intention and with Mm -hmm. great value. He ran up against a huge problem in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Gold was being discovered. He wanted to protect the Indians in the Black Hills, but he realized that he would have a almost a war on his hand if he were to put all kinds of military to keep out the the gold traders. And so, in a sense, he pulled back. So, at the end of the day, this is a long story, of a, a short story of a long story. He didn't follow through as much as he wanted to. His intentions were never fully validated as the years went forward. And the Indian wars went forward, and the Indians did not receive what they should have from the federal government.
0: I have a quick question that just occurred to me, and it was yes. what you said about him rooting out corruption in the Indian Agency, which right. is, is a great point. That had been such a problem for decades. Is that yeah. aid, any yes. aid that was even set aside for them never reached them because corrupt people right. were pocketing it? Grant is often dinged as a corrupt administration. Like that's the thing everyone knows about him. Why right. doesn't he get credit for tackling corruption here?
1: Well, this is a this is one of the most difficult questions I faced in writing this biography. I mean, Grant was a great, astute judge of people in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. William Rosecrans, who would have been voted number one in his class to graduate from West Point. Grant saw early on this guy didn't have it. He was all talk and no show. Yeah, But he didn't seem very good in understanding his own cabinet officers. Why? Well, first of all, a lot of cabinet officers, even more then than now, were picked for geographical reasons. Well, we need someone from New England. We need someone from the Midwest. He didn't know a lot of these people. And he probably didn't do a good job of keeping track of what they were doing. He even had some of his own aides from the Civil War who would become part of his administration who and then, what do we say? Power corrupts. They were corrupted. And Grant had a hard time with conflict, I think. And he had a hard time recognizing When people were doing things that he would never do, so no one ever accused him of this, and it never got in the way of him being reelected in 1868. And I'm totally convinced Julia wanted him to run for a third term. There was no prescriptions against it. He could have easily won re-election in
0: 1872. Yeah, Uh, and and you you describe you know the well-documented cases of corruption within his administration. There, I'd I'd love to get into. More this of this, people always bring that up. People always talk about You see it over and over again in the history books, right. corrupt, corruption, corruption. Why don't they say, but he, you know, like balance it with the he tried to clean up the Indian Bureau, you know, the corruption that was there of, of, of yeah, the folks yeah, trying to sell yeah, Indian yeah. money.
1: Well, what's fascinating, I, I don't want to name the author in the book, but a, <laughs> a, a terrific book that I've been reading. It was published last year. Great yeah. author, great book. So I wanted to know well, which grant sources was she using? She she was using a biography that was 35 years old. Mm-hmm. He didn't use my biography. She didn't use Ron Chernow's biography. She didn't use Joan Waugh's book. And mm-hmm. so a terrific book on reconstruction. Again, I won't name the author but won a sure. lot of prizes. He didn't use any of the sources on Grant written in the last 15 or 20 years. So you have this to me very sad situation that people in sort of larger stories of Reconstruction, are still using sources that are 35 years old, written by a particular biographer who was really much against Grant, that are really out of date, and don't bring in what you're suggesting, what I'm suggesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, pivoting back more to this Native American policy. Right. um, So Native Americans, they could not vote back then, you know. That's right. And there are a lot of voting American citizens out West who frankly wanted that Native American land. For example, the Black Hills of of Dakota, they wanted that gold. Now, pretty much every president till now, you know, most presidents certainly had sided with the voters and helped take any land they wanted. Why did Grant buck that? You know, why didn't Grant just say, "Okay, the Native Americans, they might be being wrong, but they're not voters. I, I, I represent the voters. I should just do what they want.
1: Well, I think a big part of this is who did he appoint to be the director of Indian Affairs? Mm -hmm. He appointed Elijah Parker, a Native American. He went to his attorney general because Elijah Parker was not an American citizen (laughs) legally. He said, can I appoint this man to be in charge of Indian Affairs? The fact that he would appoint a Native American to be in charge of Native Americans me says volumes about where his heart was, where his mind was, mm-hmm. and, and, and this again began to change the whole process by which we're dealing with Native Americans.
0: So Grant changes the folks who are running the, the Indian right, policy, right, you right. know, he, he starts trying to get more aid for them, but but you mentioned that the generals are against it, you know, there's certainly people opposed. So, uh, On Grant's approach to revamping how he treated Native Americans, where was he successful, and where did he come up short?
1: Well, I should, one more thing on the Indian affairs, it's the whole question of patronage. Yes. And so this, this, again, Grant inexperienced, people wanted to appoint officers in Indian affairs through patronage, and then what happened was the patronage became a kickback. Yes. So so-and-so is appointed, and he receives a salary of $12,000, and he gives 4000 of the $12,000 back to the person who appoints it. And this is the system that had been going on forever. Yeah. We've recently come up, as we've looked at the uh, impeachment process of Donald Trump, the, the name of William Belknap has surfaced, because this is the person who was the Indian affairs person under Grant. And he rushes over to the White House when he realizes he's in trouble, and Grant, probably not wisely, accepts his resignation. But then, if you remember in the Trump story, they impeach William Belknap, even though he has resigned from the cabinet. So the whole point is, well, we can impeach Donald Trump, even though he has resigned. Or yes, second his trial. got it. Yeah. So Belknap is this guy and Belknap's wife. I mean, they're just in cahoots of all this. And I'm afraid that Grant didn't. He couldn't imagine that someone could be so corrupt. So you have to ding him, I guess, for saying he should have been paying better attention.
0: Uh, did Belknap um, get away with it then? How, how did the attempted at impeachment of Belknap end?
1: Well, it, it, he was impeached, but, uh, but but you know he, 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 you know, he got away with it in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah. Got, got it,
0: it. Got it. What do you think is the, the final uh, legacy of Grant's Native American policy? What is the legacy that lasted beyond his years and, and was felt to the future?
1: Well, we haven't even talked about some other parts of his legacy. For example, it was a strongly anti-England focus because England had been the place where Confederate raiding ships were built Mm -hmm. and launched and destroyed, not simply American Union ships, but merchant shipping. So he understands through his fine secretary of state, Hamilton Fish, that England going forward could be, should be America's greatest ally. Mm -hmm. And he begins to set in motion how this will happen. And it does happen. He also, the general when he has a conversation with Bismarck on his world tour, Bismarck says, well, you are the greatest general of the world. And, and, this, and Grant says, but, but I don't like war. And so Grant is involved in, in, in arbitration. The mm-hmm. whole case with England is finally settled in Geneva in arbitration. And Grant becomes an advocate for an alternative to war, which is arbitration. Yeah. It also, I think, does a good job in the so-called gold scare, the sort of econ- economic issues that are going forward. So there's many aspects where Grant has a very fine presidency, but probably finally it's social justice. I've just completed doing the C-SPAN 2021 Presidential Historian Survey in which there's eight categories, and one of them is social justice. And here I rank Grant way up towards the top. This would be his finest legacy, his standing up for the rights of African-Americans.
0: Got it, and I'd I'd love to pivot back, if you don't mind. Surely. The Native American policy in terms of what was the lasting impact of it? You know, was he he tried to reform it for the better. Did he succeed? Did any of the things he tried make life better for the Native Americans?
1: Ultimately, it didn't succeed. We we can give him uh, high marks for his intention. We can give him high marks for the way he began the policy. Perhaps it's, he didn't follow through. The, the opposition was so fierce within his own party, within his own military. So ultimately, the Native Americans were, did not reap the benefits of what his original intentions were.
0: Um, last question I have for you. I yes. really enjoyed this interview. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from President Grant?
1: Well, I'll finish with this story. I was asked by the Library of Congress about a year and a half ago to speak to some members of Congress. They put on a breakfast and they gave me the title Leadership Lessons from Lincoln and Grant. So I had to answer that question for myself and for them. And one of the leadership questions that I, qualities that I lifted up, was the quality of humility you know, Lincoln was a humble person. Grant writes a letter to Sherman in which he says, I never sought this job. I'm only doing this job because I think it needs to be done. So this, remember, was October 2019 when I spoke. And so I said, what, what has ever happened to humility? Mm-hmm. When the meeting was over, I noticed that one of the women in the audience, I apprised her to be a spouse of a congressman, she came up with tears in her eyes. And she said, my husband is a Republican congressman from the South. He's been a congressman for more than 20 years. And she asked this question. She said, do you think it's possible that humility will ever return to American politics? And she had tears in her eyes. She asked that question. Well, I think it is beginning to return. But I think that's, you know, Grant and Lincoln are historical figures. They can't answer climate change. They can't tell a president what to do in Afghanistan. But I think they do have a model of character of which humility would be a part of it. And empathy would be another part of it. that I think we very much need in our time.
0: Well, here, here to a return of <laughs> empathy. And- <laughs> right. If you'd like to hear more from Ron, please check out his recent book, A. Lincoln, A Biography, and American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant. Thank you so much for your time, Ron.
1: Kenny, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's good to hear from you all. You can follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army, Olgar, Fife and Drum Corps in our next episode. We'll look at the life and presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes and the election that you have heard teased several times now as the most contentious in American history. And we'll ask, what do you do if the opposition refuses to admit you won? What will you give away to preserve peace? That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.